caterpillar, chrysalis, butterfly. This is an image that comes up in our Wellsprings DNA, our values, beliefs, and mission. And for me, it is an image that is resonant with our, uh, with our journeys, with our spiritual journeys, our, what I like to call our journeys of recreation, caterpillar, chrysalis, and butterfly. And I was thinking that when a child is born and brought into this community, we celebrate a ritual of welcome, a dedication of the child. And for those of you who were here a few weeks ago, we did this with young Charlotte, very vocal young Charlotte. <laughs> and when we do this as a congregation, we're not simply acknowledging the new life that is before us, but we are committing ourselves to walk with this child as she grows in spirit, to guide her, to help her on her journey of creation and recreation. And when we do that, it is an invitation for us, for our own selves, to reflect again and engage in our own spiritual journey. So Robin and I have been working together over the last few months in developing this coming-of-age program for our youth, which is designed as an intentional time for our young people or young teenagers, ages roughly 12 to 16, to reflect on where they are in their spiritual journey and to engage their imaginations, to engage their imaginations in where they'd like the journey to take them. And we're calling this program SPARK, Connecting Through Our Lives. And when we were tasked to create this curriculum, we sat together, and mostly what we did is we talked about our own spiritual journey, our own faith journeys. And particularly, we tried to think back to when we were in this age group, this 12 to 16-year-old, um, which was, wasn't always easy. It's you know, been a while. <laughs> but what came out of those conversations were these really rich stories um, for us. And, and some of those stories were funny, and some were painful, and others still were kind of angry, and then some were very tranquil. So what we thought we'd do today is to kind of let you all into that process with us and how we, and how we work through some of this. So we're going to share a few of the stories that we shared with each other, these moments that we found of, of being the caterpillar, of seeking seeds of connection, of needing to be held, and finding ourselves on a journey of recreation. So with that, I think we're going to start with Robin. I am in sixth grade, new to middle school, and all the buzz was going around all day long that after school, Joey Ide and Tony Lialli were going to fight. So when the bell rang at three o'clock, all the middle schoolers ran down to the local, it was in New Jersey, circle, and we circled around. I jumped on that bandwagon too. We were filled with adrenaline, anxious excitement, and middle school anarchy. Because this was forbidden. The stakes were high. The two fighters could get suspended. I went. I had butterflies in my belly, and I remember fighting back tears that I had no idea the origin of. 
know the feeling you get when the hair on your arm stands up, the tingles in your hair, and you have that lump in your throat or your belly, and you're rendered absolutely speechless. You can't speak, and everything around you goes crisp and clear, and you feel like you're just connected in this silence with everything around you. It was that kind of feeling. Well, all of a sudden, the madhouse starts to happen. The circle starts to move and sway, and the kids are fighting in the middle, and everyone starts to cheer, and everything is happening around me. It's like a swirl of energy. I didn't feel very safe at all. And always being short, I couldn't see a darn thing. <laughs> but I felt it. I felt that something, that tingling in my hair, that tingling in my face, in my hands. And then all of a sudden, the crowd splits, and I could see the boys right in the center. I saw Joey eyed, face down. Tony Lyelli was on top of him. He was hitting him. For just a few seconds, Joey eyed lifted his face. It was completely bloody. Our eyes met. I was frozen in that instant, breathless. I felt his pain. I felt his humiliation. I felt his fear. I almost passed out. It was like I had to shake myself. Then the crowd came back and the, you know, the screaming started to happen and it just went and I tried to find my way out of that circle. And I finally found my way out of the circle. I went and sat on the curb and caught my breath. I didn't know what to do with myself. All of a sudden, I started to cry. And for the rest of the night, I spent crying. I had no understanding why I was crying, no idea of what to say. I certainly didn't share it with my friends, and I didn't share it with my parents. The next day, I remember seeing Joey Eyed at school. I didn't say a word. I felt like we had this silent connection, but he was in eighth grade, remember, and I was in sixth. For the rest of the year, every time I saw Joey Eyed, I felt like we had this secret, intimate knowing. So this is, this is such a strong image of you and Joey and this violence of this fight, the confusion of emotion that's going on. And I can think of a lot of times, maybe not as dramatically, but there's a lot of times when I was young and still through today, where I sense this connection to another person, where it's like, I feel pain that's not mine. Or I feel joy that's not really mine. And, you know, as a, as a young teenager, it's really hard to, um, to understand that. Because maybe that's the first time you've really started to feel it. And, and I get the sense with this incident with Joey that, that that's maybe the first time you really got a sense of, of what that's like. So today, as, as Robin today, <laughs> Um, how do you understand that connection that, that you made with Joey? Yeah, um, it was the first time that I can recall feeling it. And the it that I was feeling with today's language and today's experience is empathy. It wasn't just a simple emotional response. Empathy is something different. It's not sympathy. Sympathy is conscious. We consciously are sympathetic for others. But this was a true, vicarious experiencing, an unconscious response. 
Some may call what I was feeling in my hands and in my hair energy, and perhaps that's what I was feeling. But it's taken me years to fully understand that connection, that feeling I had with Joey Ide. We're all connected to the Joey Ides. We're all connected to the suffering that we see. Even if I wasn't a part of that fight, I am never ever not the same from being in that experience of it. We are all connected to the joy too, and the awe. I mean, how many of us feel that when we are watching the Olympics at home in the comfort of our living room and someone wins the gold medal or the Super Bowl, you know, we're all going to Disney World. <laughs> it's that vicarious feeling. And in Wellsprings, the language that we have is ripples of connection, a freedom reaching its fulfillment in connection with each other. So a second story. In the beginning, God created the universe, all of it, from nothingness to human beings, and it took exactly six days, according to Genesis. Now, in high school, we learned that creation maybe takes a longer path from nothingness to humanity in about 13 billion years. And the differential between six days and 13 billion years only really starts to make sense when you're trying to sit through sixth period English class. <laughs> Nonetheless, in my youthful hubris, I was pretty sure I could reconcile the disparity. So one Sunday, I was in rapt attention as the youth pastor of my church was discussing Genesis and I saw my opportunity. And when it came time for questions, I boldly raised my hand. And in my best scholarly voice, I began. Now, in science class, we were discussing the origins of the Earth and the universe and stuff. And so science says that the universe was created over 13 billion years ago. And over that, period, that time period from then to now, there's been this ever-creative, ever-evolving process. Now, I have a hard time getting my head around 13 billion years especially when it's given how hard it is to sit through sixth period. So I can imagine folks a couple thousand years ago would have a similar difficulty. So would it not make sense that the whole six days thing is really a metaphor for some longer period of time? I mean, if I had to sit through sixth period English for six whole days, it would seem like an eternity. My voice trailed off because at that moment, a smile began to form on the face of our youth minister. I had a feeling that he had been waiting for this, just this very challenge to God's word. At, le at last, at last, he could, with one fell swoop, proclaim the inerrant living word, demonstrate the force and clarity of that word, and perhaps even get a few of these kids to publicly accept Jesus as their savior and king. It would be a good day. <laughs> and so as my words his rose up. I don't recall exactly what he said. But it was essentially this, that a day was a day, and that when the Bible states everything was created in six, that's exactly what happened. And he knows this not only by his faith, but by the vastly smarter and learned people who have studied the Bible and then repeatedly come to the exact same conclusion. And there is no science, no theory, and certainly no 14-year-old pimply-faced kid <laughs> 
who could possibly shake the inerrancy of the Scriptures. Therefore and thereby there is no reason to question it so. And feeling the heat of his passion, he kept going. And so he says, anyone who does so question does not have Jesus in his heart, but Satan, and will not have an eternal life, but suffer eternity in hell. You know, the, the force of his words, the certainty of his response, the passion of his faith, these should have brought me immediately to my knees in contrition. I suppose my next correct move would have been to accept the truth right there and then, convert my evil, sinful soul. But I did not. Instead, I sat cross-legged on the floor with my burning head in my hands, contemplating the lesson I had learned. Never, never, ever ask a question. So the story leaves us laughing a bit, but thinking about um, the 14-year-old boy who had certainly not had oxygen added to his light and his, you know, he didn't have his path illuminated. The darkness and that complete deflation of hanging your head in your hands, um, you know, it's, it's the antithesis of this quote that comes to mind is, at times our own light goes out and is rekindled by a spark from another. And he didn't rekindle your light. He didn't add anything to it. He snuffed you out. <laughs> and so how did you get to be from that 15, 14-year-old boy snuffed out, deflated, to this obvious seeker and question-asker, Unitarian Universalist <laughs> ministerial student that you are today? What was that journey like? Well, you know, um, these wounds, these, these kind of points of humiliation, particularly when you receive them, at least when I received them um, at age 13, 14, 15 years old, um, those wounds run pretty deep. And so it's going to take time, right? It's going to take time to heal that in the right kind of place. And we learn from those wounds, at least I did. Now, perhaps it's not the most healthy of learnings, I'll concede, but we learn from them, and those lessons have to be unlearned. So it really wasn't until I found myself sitting in the pews of a Unitarian Universalist church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, probably 10, 12 years after this incident. And, and here was a place where people um, encouraged the questions. They um, wanted me to be a questioning person. They demanded it from me. Um, they were questioning, and they wanted to share their questions with me, and they wanted me to offer mine, to cast mine into the world. And I honestly did so at first pretty tentatively. I started to feel safe. I kind of started to feel held, but I wasn't sure. And it turns out I moved around a lot, and so it took me a while to then get back to a religious community. And this time it was in um, Iowa. And, and there again, I was asked to offer my questions. And not only that, 
They turned it on me. <laughs> it wasn't just ask the questions, but it's to seek the answers, to seek the answers for myself. And, and that community held me and supported me and invited me into this process of asking and seeking answers. And it didn't matter what my answers were. What mattered is that I worked at it, and we did it together. So it was being held. It was being held in a safe community. And in, in Wellsprings, we have this in, in our DNA here, too. And there's a line in the, in the part of the DNA that talks about discovering spiritual gifts. And it proclaims, with humility and generosity of spirit, we challenge each other in our explorations. And together, together we discover new understandings of our spiritual source and of ourselves. So that, that right there, is what rekindled the spark in me, what rekindled my flame. I'm in eighth grade. The phone rings. The girl on the other end identifies herself. I know who she is. She's not part of my regular clique, so I wonder why she's calling me. She gets right to the point, the point I wasn't expecting. John doesn't want to go out with you anymore. He likes Jill better. You're not going out. He wanted me to call you and tell you. Okay? <laughs> I sat with the receiver in my hand, pulled it away, and looked at it. Who is she? Why? What? So I hung up the phone, because that was pretty much the message. <laughs> I sat there. My stomach was dropped. I felt the rush of heat go to my face and to my chest, flushing my ears. I was mad, I was incensed, I was overcome with, with, with confusion. Why is she lying to me? Is this a joke? It is eighth grade after all, and girls can be cruel. So I called John's house. I mean, after all, after school, we walked to my bike. He held my hand and said goodbye. He didn't tell me he was breaking up with me. I dial his house. His mother answers the phone. We have a two-sentence conversation. At the end, she says, okay, I'll have him call you back. I hang up the phone and I replay that conversation over and over. I come to the conclusion that his mother knows that he has broken up with me. The entire eighth grade knows that he has broken up with me. My dog knows that he has broken up with me. I'm the last one in on this humiliating joke. There's hope. He'll call me back, won't he? I go through the motions of after-school activities, homework, TV, eating. Dinner happens. He never calls. Phone never rings. So I hop on my bike, and I think, well, I'll drive down to the baseball field. And when I drive down to the baseball field, I'll clear this up. By the time I get there, the baseball field is empty and I'm not sure whether I'm pleased or dissatisfied at that point. Living on an island, I think, ah, I'll take my bike to the beach. So I ride over to the beach, I park my bike, I get off and I step onto the sand in the cool April evening. I sit in the dunes, I sit alone. I allow myself to feel. I cry. I admit to myself, I'm hurt. 
I'm feeling alone. I'm feeling rejected. I ask myself all those teenage angst questions. Why doesn't he like me? Aren't I good enough? Aren't I pretty? Will I always be alone? I hear the sound of the ocean. I focus on it. I watch the lull of the waves. I feel held by them. I like myself. I feel content. I ride my bike home. I'm in high school. I just had a huge fight with my parents. I'm failing geometry. The yelling and the punishments have been doled out, and this time I know what to do. I escape. I grab my bike. I ride to the beach. I sit and watch the waves, and I think about how the sand is just infinite amounts of broken shells eroded over time and time, and I feel calmed by that. I'm able to overcome my own issues if, heck, all these, all this sand used to be shells. It's just this process over and over. Maybe I will be through the process, and I will make it through geometry. I feel inspired. I ride my bike home. We are mother and daughter. We are sitting on the beach together. We're watching the waves. I notice that our breath is not just in sync with one another, but our breath is in sync with the ocean, with the waves. And just then, she leans into me and she says, when I watch the waves, I feel as though my worries are small compared to the great powerful source of the never-ending sea. I look at her. She feels it too. I have never felt closer to my mother. I smile. She smiles back. I feel so much love. We ride our bikes home together and we laugh. So that's such a beautiful description. Um, if you're going to the beach, in all these moments of, of kind of trial and difficulty, um, and in the way you know, I can hear the waves, I can, I can feel the sand. Um, and, and what strikes me in this story is how each time you went, you discovered something, discovered something new. You discovered yourself, that you like yourself. You got inspired. You were moved. You got connected to your mother. You got connected to the earth. And, you know, as a, as a young teenager, um, I didn't hear that you had a sense of what was going on. You know, what was it about the beach? Why would you keep going back to the beach other than you, that, that you knew that was a particular place for you? So again, in, in today's language, in, in Robin's now language, you know, what was the beach for you? What was going on there? Well, um, what I was developing was a spiritual practice. Um, in my understanding today, that I was a young contemplative. Actually, someone, I was telling them this story, and they said, oh, you were a young contemplative. I said, I was? What's that? Well, you go into deep prayer and mindfulness and connect with your surroundings and silent meditation. I thought, oh, I have been a young contemplative my entire life. Maybe not so young now, but continue to feed me those contemplative practices. Um, 
I was just doing what was natural, what I was drawn to. I had absolutely no language or vocabulary for what was happening. I just knew that this was something that, as you said, allowed me to be me, held me, made me feel connected. If you had asked me if I prayed, or if I had a spiritual practice, or if I had a religious life at that age, I would have absolutely said, no. Because that was something that my classmates did. They went to Catholic catechism class, CCD. They went to Bible, vacation Bible school. They had prayer groups. I wasn't a part of any of that. I just knew that this was something that I was drawn to, and it made me feel good. It made me feel connected. At Wellsprings here, we talk about the bush burning and blazing everywhere. I was living that and didn't even know it. That feeling where spirit is talking to me in my everyday experiences. Thank you. So as we have shared our stories that have allowed Greg and I to open up to get to know each other on a deeper place and to bring ourselves back to where we were at those ages to write this curriculum for our, our group, we realize that our lives are complete successions of this caterpillar, chrysalis, and butterfly moment. The connections, the seed of connection that I made with Joey Ide, feeling that empathy. Greg being snuffed out and then being held again by a religious community to heal his wounds and help illuminate his path as a seeker and question asker. Me, as a young contemplative, developing a spiritual practice that was authentic and deeply personal for me. The journey of who we are never ends. Until, of course, it does end, and that's debatable, depending upon where you're sitting on Sunday. Um, but one thing we do know is that we get distance. And as we step aside on the next part of our path, we get this distance, and that is the gift. Because the distance allows us a chance to reflect, the gift of reflection, which allows us to look back and see and feel and understand our own story. We can see how our personal history shapes us and that we are the sum total of all of the experiences that we've had, not just with others, but with ourselves. Our story, here and today in the community, we are in this room with a collective total of stories. We're the sum total of one another. The experiences and interactions that we have, you know, we are the ancestors and elders of Wellsprings. We are the ones with the wisdom to share. Our beloved community needs this. I ask you to look to your lives. We have the 2.0 class looking at our, listening to our lives. Listen to your lives. Look to your lives. As Greg and I did in preparing this program for our youth of community. But I think it's the sacred stories that allow us the valuable wisdom to be ourselves and to share that in this community. The journey is never ending. It's not just with our youth coming into early adulthood. It's all the transitional periods that we are all going through. And how can we share our wisdom and deepen our community, beloved, with who we really are? Because after all, we're the caterpillar, we're the chrysalis, and we are the butterfly. Amen.
May we all continue to grow in the days to come spiritually. Let us pray together. God of many names and multitudes of experiences, we thank you for community to share our lives, express our awe, and question our wonder. We ask that you guide us, parents, teachers, elders, to offer our own gifts of wisdom to those who are taking steps towards places that we may already have been, to allow us to see the abundance of our own lives, to see that love and share it without fear that it'll ever run out. Allow that love and compassion to run freely in our hands, off of our lips, and through our hearts. I thank you for the willingness to open to the grace of our own creation story as we journey through seeking connections of meaning of self and meaning of you, source. I offer this prayer in all the many expressions of love, light, and divinity. Amen. <laughs>